This is Eight and a Better. My name is Avi Singh. I'm here with Sajid Khan. Sajid, what up? What up? Eight and a Better hit the road this weekend. We are in Monterey, California. We're at the California Public Defenders Association Capital Defense Seminar. And we are here with Mark Bookman. Mark, welcome. How are you guys? Tell us who you are just for a moment so we can get into stuff. I'm the co-director of the Atlantic Center for Capital Representation. We're a a nonprofit in Philadelphia that kind of does whatever we feel is necessary to help people facing the death penalty or juveniles facing or suffering from life without parole. And before that, I was a public defender for 28 years. Um, in, in Philadelphia? In Philadelphia. What brings you to this conference? Are you here as an attendee, as a staff member, or a little bit of both? Well, a little bit of both. I mean, you'd be crazy not to sit in on some of the stuff that you hear at a conference like this. It's an immense conference. There's 15 presentations every hour and a half or so. Right. <laughs> and, you you know, if you can't find something you're interested in, that's just should be another line of work probably. <laughs> yeah. But, but I'm, also, I'm also presenting and doing some training. What are you presenting on? Well, I'm talking about storytelling and, uh, and pretrial litigation. And then we did a whole thing today on, on capital voir dire, which is a fascinating and important topic, too. So it's cool. So you mentioned storytelling. Um, I was just mentioning to you before we started recording that I actually had read a story of yours uh, before even meeting you here today and, and our correspondence before this podcast. It was about the, uh, the story in the case of Ricky Olds, someone that you're currently representing. Is that right? Yes. The story that you sent us and that we that was out on Vice News and I think with other outlets was the, I think it called the boy who who grew up in prison. Is the that 14 right? Year old. The fourteen-year-old boy who grew up in prison. Can you tell us a little bit of uh, about Ricky Old's backstory? Yeah, Ricky. I I didn't set out to represent him. Actually, what I what I was doing was I I felt like the juvenile lifer story, which is so you know, important right now, especially where I come from in Pennsylvania and specifically Philadelphia, but Pennsylvania has the most juvenile lifers of anybody. And so I set out to look for a a good story to tell their tale, like not Ricky's tale, but everybody's. And and, and so, you know, I always look for somebody to to tell the story through. And and I, I was just going through appellate cases and I stumbled onto to Ricky's case. And when I went out to see him, I, I didn't realize, like I read the opinion, I, I sort of couldn't believe it. And then I went to meet him out in the middle of Pennsylvania, you know, in prison. And his story was outrageous in the extreme, I thought. And at some point I just decided I was going to represent him because I wasn't, I just wasn't happy with the way things were going. And yeah. uh, I, I, he should have never been in prison for a minute. And here he was in prison for 37 years. Mark, did you learn about him before Miller versus Alabama? No. Or after? No, I, in fact, I, I, I started looking for a story to tell on this topic, you know, after, after Miller, and, and, and because there were so many in Pennsylvania, I thought that yeah. story just needed to be told. But little did I know, you know, how outrageous his particular story was. So when you say there's so many in Pennsylvania, you talk about juvenile lifers. We're talking yes. about people that have been convicted of serious crimes uh, for, that they committed or are accused of committing. Uh, when they were under the age of 18 and are and were imposed with uh, life without that's right a mandatory life without parole so so the facts if you were convicted in pennsylvania at least of first or second degree murder first degree murder specific intent murder the, the worst kind of murder second degree murder felony murder so if you were convicted of either of those, you got a mandatory life without parole. It didn't matter how old you were. Right. And, uh, and so that, we not, have a lot of those. No context, no circumstances could change no. uh, a judge's discretion or exactly. actually their lack thereof. Exactly right. And that proved to be very, very important in Ricky's case, as it turned out. If you told me name the top, the top incarcerator of kids for life without right. parole of the states, you know, just 
make a guess. I wouldn't guess Pennsylvania. Is there something about it? Yeah, um, yeah. What 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 there is about it? First of all, Pennsylvania, in my opinion, is has always, until very recently, been a pretty regressive criminal justice state. The reason we have the most, um, I'm I'm reasonably certain of this. We went to life without parole for first and second degree murder earlier than anyone else. It was sometime mm-hmm. in the in the mid 70s. So you, you've got, a, a, there was no distinction between juveniles and adults. Uh, if you were tried as an adult, you were tried as an adult. And because we went to mandatory life without parole so early, earlier than I think almost any other state, if not any other state, and because we're a big state, we piled up the numbers. Yeah. I also think that the, the private bar, Pennsylvania, has another distinction, which is that we don't, the state does not fund a statewide justice system. It's county by county. And I think because of that, we have a pretty lousy private bar, in my opinion, and I think for many, many years, people were just routinely getting convicted without the kind of scrutiny that, that in my opinion, they should have had. So what are the numbers like of young people who were convicted of, of crimes and sentenced to juvenile uh, to LWAP that are sitting today in Pennsylvania prison? As of today, we've actually sentenced a decent amount of them, resentenced a mm-hmm. decent amount mm-hmm. of them, but at the time... Miller came down, we had 500 wow. juveniles and 300 just in Philadelphia. So that's a big number so for these are juveniles. 500 kids, essentially, kids, that kids. were sentenced to die in that's right. Pennsylvania prisons. And many of them in prison for a long time. Uh, we, had w- we had one guy that was in prison for, I think it was 50-some years. Wow. Uh, a, a bunch of others, 40s and high 30s. And uh, Ricky, for example, 37. That's a long time for a 14-year-old to be who you know convicted, and we haven't talked about his crime yet. Crime yeah. in quotes, I should say, and uh, yeah. So that's I think that's the explanation for Pennsylvania. So you're looking through these cases, you're trying to identify some egregious instances of this uh, constitutional violation. That's right. And you read an appellate decision about Ricky. Yes. What What stood out to you? Initially, was it that it's an accessory liability yes. or something like that for a 14-year-old on that, a felony murder? And that that's exactly I, I was just looking for. I, I just had a, a ballpark sense of what I wanted. I wanted, a, I wanted a kid. The younger, the better. I mean, frankly, I wanted somebody that had not been convicted of, of an awful crime. Uh, Ricky sort of fit the bill in, in a lot of different ways. His case looked extraordinarily minimal to me when I read the the, the, well, uh, the appellate opinion that upheld it. I was somewhat shocked, and I thought, maybe I'm missing something. And, uh, you know, he kind of, he, he fit every quality that I, that, I, that I was looking for. I mean, little did I know his story at the time. I, I was just looking for someone that kind of fit that construct. Yeah, why don't you tell us about it? So, so Ricky, Ricky's story is infuriating in, in any number of ways. He's a, he's a 14-year-old kid, uh, smart kid, you know, a little on the wild side, but nothing particularly uh, uh, outrageous. He's out with some older kids that night, 16-year-old and an 18-year-old. And they get home late. It's President's Day weekend, I think it was, or I, I can't remember. It was a holiday weekend, a Columbus Day. Um, and and uh, he says to the kids, I'm hungry. Uh, I, I want to let's stop and get something to eat. And they, they're in Pittsburgh, so they pull in to this place called the Fort Wayne Cigar Store, which is kind of like a 7-Eleven. I don't know what, what if you guys yeah, are, are yeah. familiar with those. And uh, so it's it's just a snack store basically. And as he's getting out of the car, the 16-year-old kid that he's with says, "I think I'm going to rob somebody." And Ricky, not believing him, because this kid always kind of talked like a tough kid, Ricky says, "Yeah, right." 
like sarcastically. And he goes into the to the store. He goes into the cigar store, and he goes to the back of the store, and he gets a bag of potato chips. And he goes to the to the counter, and he's joking with the cashier, and he's paying for the potato chips, which to me is a particularly ironic fact, uh, because he gets convicted of conspiracy to rob. Meanwhile, right. he's here. He is paying for a bag of potato chips. I've handled a lot of homicide cases never saw anything like that so anyway he's paying for the bag of potato chips he sees the 16 year old kid pull out a gun uh, uh, to rob this uh, postal worker he's on a, on a late shift he's, he's taking a break from the from the post office to get cigarettes so the 16 year old pulls out a gun to rob him Ricky sees this after he pays for the potato chips and he takes off around the corner this is, this is not just his story. This is the evidence that the Commonwealth brought to trial. So he takes off around the corner. He's already around the corner by the time he hears a shot fired. He runs back to the car. Remember, he's a 14-year-old kid. Got nowhere else to go. Got nowhere else to go. Runs back to the car. The 16-year-old gets into the car uh, uh, sometime after him and says, hey, what happened? You were supposed to help with the robbery. Ricky says, no, no. Because he doesn't want any part of this robbery at all. They all get in the car and they leave. Ricky goes to trial, is convicted of second-degree murder. And the judge, who is this hanging judge in Pittsburgh, his name is Samuel Strauss, a legendarily tough judge in Pittsburgh, doesn't want to give Ricky life without parole. So he talks to the DA and he says, you know, because you're... This kid's involvement is at best minimal. Arguably, right. he's not involved at all. Uh, the, the only way he, the, the, the conviction was upheld is that the, the court said he got into the he was he, he arrived at the scene of the crime with the perpetrator and he left with the perpetrator. Of course, they don't mention that he's 14 years old. Like, yeah. what's he supposed to do? Call an Uber? It's <laughs> 1979. Yeah. I was so just say so yeah. yeah. Call so, anybody? I mean. He couldn't yeah, call any. I mean, he's, you know, he's getting into a car. Yeah. So, so anyway, the, the judge doesn't want to give him life without parole. He's kind of begging, and this is all in the press. He's begging the DA to, 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 to make some kind of an accommodation somehow. The DA says, absolutely not. Um, and meanwhile, the kid, the kid will never do more than 17 years and probably less. Now, I think 17 years was outrageous considering the, the role he played in this crime, which I still haven't quite figured out. But it turned, the, the DA was completely wrong on the law, whether he was lying or whether he was just stupid. I don't know. Either way, there was a mandatory in place at the time. And, you know, for whatever reason, he, he, he refused to make any deal. And uh, 37 years later, you pick up the story. Ricky has adjusted phenomenally well in prison. He's a very bright guy. He's a complete citizen. And uh, finally, he, he gets out. The story doesn't even end there because he gets... He, he, I, I'm arguing to the judge that he should be paroled right then and there. The DA is asking for 20 years. He's done 37. So I say parole him. Let's get him out of there. When did the, this happen? Huh? When was this? This was this was this the sentencing was November or Dece- I guess it was de- November or December of 2016. Got it. Okay. So so I want him to get paroled. The judge says no. I feel that I have to give him 20 to life. That's what the statute calls for. The statute doesn't really apply to Ricky because his case is so old. But the judge feels compelled to do that. But the judge at the same time is sympathetic. So he grants me appeal bond so Ricky can be out to get paroled. The district attorney who's only asking for 20 recognizing that, that Ricky has already done 17 years more than the DA is asking, nonetheless appeals the bond 
my God. No. So Ricky has to stay in for another Thanksgiving, Keep another Christmas, up. keeps him in for another three or four months, and then he gets paroled. So the whole thing is completely infuriating to me. And uh, I should point out a couple of important facts. One, that Ricky Olds is uh, a, a black kid. And two, the jury that judged him was all white. Uh, uh, apparently, all white juries were kind of routine in Pittsburgh up until the early 90s, which is also shocking to me. Um, when, when the homicide happened, you talked about in one of your articles that it was reported a certain way, like uh, the youth. Yeah, were yeah, given yeah. A description. They, they, they let they let everybody they let the readers know that the youths were from the I think it's the north side, and so that told everybody where what, you know what 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 uh, uh, color Ricky was, and then they described the postal worker who was white as a as a, a I don't know I can't remember now somebody from Millvale or something like whatever it was they telegraphed the race of the two of the of the parties, and uh, I mean I'm absolutely convinced that a, 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 an all-white jury would not have convicted a white kid, a 14-year-old white kid, of murder for buying a bag of potato chips and then running around the corner when, his, when the co-defendant pulled a gun. The whole thing is infuriating to me. In, in California, we have an instruction that says, uh, like, mere presence or presence alone right. is not enough for liability. Yes. And, and the, that's what it sounds that, like you've it, it described. It sure sounds like that. And when you read the Superior Court opinion, I mean, you know, there's so many things to attribute this to. And one, I think, is bad lawyering. But somehow our Superior Court felt that his his getting back into the car was the deciding factor. Mm-hmm. They never even mentioned that he's 14 years old. I, I, he, he really sat before the court as a, a middle school kid. Right. I mean, right. the judge, this hanging judge, didn't want to do this. Yeah. I mean, I, even him. I've never heard of post-conviction, so after the jury says the words guilty, I've never heard of a judge attempting to do anything with the charges. So after Ricky was found guilty, the judge said, hey, can we do something about this charge to get it to a different one? Or or can we just modify the sentence? I mean, you know, I mean, I don't have to tell you guys, if, if people don't appeal then, you know, whatever happens, happens. I mean, the judge was just trying to be reasonable with this. I don't know if he wanted him to, to, to vacate the conviction necessarily. He just didn't want him to seek life without parole. And frankly, you know, had the district attorney done that agreement, I think it would have happened. I don't, you know, I don't know who would have objected to it, frankly. But, uh, I mean, it never got to that because the DA wasn't even hearing about it. Yeah, uh, and, then, and then that same district attorney who said, the judge, you know, he'll get parole after 17 years or the judge shouldn't be doing this, winds up becoming a judge reviewing Ricky's case in some way. Yeah, yeah. You guys remember my, my essay better than I do. I'm <laughs> well, glad, I'm glad you guys are refreshing <laughs> me here. I should have read it before I came on. No. Um, yeah, that, there's an, I mean, there's an irony there as well. Uh, it's just, you know, to, to call it a good old boys network is not really to do it justice to good old boys. It's worse than that, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. But, yeah, he became a judge. Hopefully, hopefully when he became an appellate judge, he knew the law better than when he was a district attorney. You know, and this is a kind of a legendary guy in Pittsburgh, too. So what did it take? Uh, was it because of the change in Supreme Court law that granted Ricky the opportunity to uh, to be represented by you to then uh, get garner his garner his ultimate release? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I mean, he would still be in, to, you know, had Miller not come down, um, he would still be in prison. I mean, no, right. you know, nobody would nobody would have said a thing. And, and, you know, Ricky's adjustment was a little difficult because I think I think it's, it's I think it's in the in the essay. You know, he hadn't really done anything wrong. So he wasn't respected uh, by 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 the by the convicts, as he would oh, say. Interesting. But 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 at the same time, 
you know, all the guards thought he had, you know, killed this postal worker. Kind so he's of. kind of getting so it he, both ways. That's he exactly damn right. Damn if he does, damn if he does. That's don't. right. Um, but, but like I said, he adjusted fantastically well in prison, and he's adjusted fantastically well since prison. Yeah, I was just going to ask that. So what's that transition been like for, for someone like him who's, like you like you wrote, who grew up in in institutionalized? Uh, what's that been like to come out right. essentially decades later and uh, attempt to integrate back into a whole different world? He's doing He's doing quite well, but it, it's still somewhat infuriating to me. He's on a lifetime parole. So there's just there's nothing that calls for this. There's no penological interest in putting him on lifetime parole. But Pennsylvania hasn't really, and a lot of states haven't. They haven't really looked at this issue yet. So this is the issue I just argued in the in the in the in the superior court a couple of weeks ago, which okay. is, why is this guy on lifetime parole? I mean, you know, juveniles get individualized sentencing, and 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 we we uh, now kind of reject mandatory sentences. Meanwhile, he's got a mandatory lifetime uh, parole, and it's, there's no reason for him. Is, can he be returned to prison for a year at a time? He can be returned can to prison if he violates it. He also has curfews. He's got to pay court costs on a regular basis. I mean, it's, it's not as bad as incarceration, but there's no reason he should have restrictions on him. He, can't, he has restrictions on travel. He has restrictions on what time he has to be home. Right. Uh, a lot of restrictions. On top of the realistic life that a someone with a, convic- a felony conviction has, you know, for for a murder has to carry with them as they attempt to integrate back in the community. Yeah, uh, let alone all these other restrictions you're talking about. I mean, our next uh, I, our next stop, I mean, outside of these appeals in the courts, is to go to the to the governor for a pardon, mm-hmm. which I fully intend to do. So it's it's just so startling as as we that that this country in the 70s and the 80s to this day uh, seeks to to define young people by the worst thing that they've ever done as a 14 year old 15 year old 16 year old to your point i mean to have incarcerated for him for so long and not only to do that but then to mandate this this lifetime parole he can never shake something that he tangentially was involved with as a as a boy i Uh, mean imagine uh, us being held accountable for the rest of our lives for something we did as as teenagers but i'll tell you it's worse than that I agree with everything you just said, but for me, I mean, when I put I put this case at the very top of my pile of injustice, and that is a big pile. You can't do what I do for all these years. I've seen false confessions. I've seen, you know, prosecutors hiding discovery. I've seen police detectives taking the fifth in, 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 in capital murder cases. I mean, I, I really feel like I've seen it all, not just me. There's plenty of people at this conference that have seen it all as well. What truly bugs me about this case is that everybody knew that this is not like a false confession. This is not like somebody hid something. It's not like a misidentification. Everybody knew the facts. So when you when you say he shouldn't be judged by the worst thing he ever did, I'm saying, what in God's name did he do? do right, exactly. I mean, this is a 14-year-old kid who bought a bag of potato chips and ran away. Right. So, so, so what's truly horrifying about this case is that the facts were all there. Nothing got discovered later on it was all right in front of the jury the judge and the prosecutor and still they put him in prison for 37 years do you uh find in your work that you're doing now especially for these for the resentencing of juvenile lifers are you seeing significant pushback from da's offices that are that are insisting to try to keep these young people incarcerated keep maintain these lwap sentences you know what's that been like? There's a huge amount of pushback. Um, uh, the, uh, the 
people from the state, uh, the state district attorneys association went and talked to all the victims and and got them all, you know, uh, uh, very upset about the fact that they, they thought they had that, that this was over and now it's not over anymore. They could have talked to the victims reasonably about how how uh, uh, our our vision of juvenile behavior has evolved. Uh, that's what that's what the Eighth Amendment is all about: uh, the evolving standards of decency. But instead of that, they went and talked to the victims and told them how outrageous it was right. that all these all these all these kids were going to get resentenced years and years later. So there's that, and then there's the idea that that district attorneys just haven't bought in. Yeah. I mean, some have. We have a, a terrific new prosecutor in Philadelphia. We're going to see a lot of good things from from his office because he has a vision that is in keeping with 2018 and not keeping with 1918. That's what I'm noticing in my practice, and I think that that's why I was asking you that question is because I, I, I sense that despite the the sentiments and the rules and the and the um, language that the Supreme Court has articulated in cases like Miller, despite the the changing of the tide in, in states like California with Prop 57 and other other youthful offender parole, you I'm sensing that district attorneys feel like they know better. They they know better than the science. They know better than the legislatures. They know better than the than the the electorate um, and and, and the Supreme are, Court and the Supreme Court. And right. they are is still insisting that they want to continue to prosecute young people as adults, despite the science that tells us that's not the right thing to do. They still want to lock up our clients for lifetimes. And um, it's, a, it's a real frustration um, that we're up against. And I, I feel like hopefully through avenues like this, like the podcast telling these stories, that, that it's the kind of people on the ground levels, our citizenry, that starts pushing back against these D- DA's offices yeah. and saying, what you're doing is not right. You don't know better. The science is telling us that we can't continue to, to prosecute and lock up young people as if they're adults. And that is happening. I mean, Philadelphia has elected the most progressive prosecutor in this country's history, but there are other cities that are also electing progressive prosecutors, maybe not as progressive, but, 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 but way more progressive than, their, than, their, uh, uh, than the people that came before them. So, you know, we've got progressive prosecutors starting to be elected across the country. And I think you're I think you're absolutely right. The public is ahead of these, you know, old. I mean, I, I remember there was a study. I, I think it was uh, uh, Steve Bright, you know, a real icon in our community. I think he wrote a law review article. Someone did anyway about the fact that. 99.2 percent of the prosecutors making these decisions were white, mm-hmm. white men, not wh- not just white men. So, I mean, that was some time ago, but I'm not sure it's dramatically changed. Right. And 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 the public is is pushing back. We live through, you know, extreme over incarceration. And, you know, everybody is, is familiar with a lot of people that are listening to your podcast anyway are familiar with the, with that issue. And and um, they're called the Aider Nation. <laughs> what are they called? The Aider Nation. Aider and a better. <laughs> OK, the Aider. The Aider Nation is listening in and they know about mass incarceration and they know about the new Jim Crow and everything else. And yeah. and, and, you know, people have have had it. Mark, was there. Um, so we had some fights in California after Miller about whether it applied to people who had been sentenced to LWAP before Miller was decided, whether oh, yeah. it was uh, retroactive. Oh, yeah. And the Supreme Court, you know, last year, two years ago in Montgomery. Montgomery versus Louisiana. Yeah, they right. said that it is retroactive. It applies yes. to everybody. So if you were sentenced in 1960 for a crime you committed when you were a minor and got a mandatory sentence and you get relief under the Eighth Amendment, did you uh, experience any pushback or uh, in your representation of juveniles 
on retroactivity before Montgomery? Oh, God. Montgomery? We had a huge fight about it. In fact, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, we have a terrific Pennsylvania Supreme Court right now. We had a bad one a couple of years ago. A bunch of, a, a, two of them got removed for a uh, 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 racist, misogynistic, pornographic email scandal that, that hit Pennsylvania. That's a, a story unto itself. Our Supreme Court now is much better, but then they ruled that it was not retroactive in a case called Cunningham. And so everybody had to wait, uh, uh, you know, four or five more years where they, where they, while they kept us there. You know, that never made any sense to me. I mean, once Miller came down, it seemed obvious it was retroactive. But, you know, our Supreme Court did not agree, and uh, it was a big fight. Yeah. You're obviously very passionate about Ricky's case and about young people that are serving these lifelong prison commitments. When you return to Philadelphia tomorrow and you start your work week next week, what, what are the battlegrounds that you're, you're fighting on these days? Yeah, well, you know what? I mean, like I said, Philadelphia is really changing, and that's just – I've been in Philadelphia my whole life, basically, and that's just fantastic. We went from a very regressive criminal justice city to a very progressive one in one election. Our last DA went to prison. <laughs> so, you know, that's a, a pretty big sea change. But but outside Philadelphia, you know, the battle the battle rages, basically. So the death penalty is still a big issue. We have a governor who's imposed a moratorium, and yet that hasn't stopped prosecutors from seeking death all across the state. So between the death penalty and, and these juvenile lifer resentencings, you know, we still kind of have our hands full. I mean, it's a dogfight. Part of why we started this podcast is to tell stories, being in the jails, being on the front lines in, the, in our courthouses, telling our clients stories. So I just wanted to say thank you for telling Ricky's story to be that storyteller, uh, because I think through that storytelling, we can change the, as you well know, we can change the narrative of our justice system. So I appreciate you. Well, thanks, well, thanks for right, joining guys. us. Thank you so thanks much. Thanks for having me. Appreciate Talk it. To you.